strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Now we're moving on to the secrets of the psychics. Haven't you noticed here uh, that the book of Revelation and, and, and the Bible, while God talks about the end time events and, well, we need to know about those, it's very practical. God is interested in helping our lives, our characters, because it's the only thing we take with us to eternity is our character. And uh, so God is so good, and I'm so thankful that the Bible is so practical. All right, the secrets of the psychics. I love coming here to Delphi because here at Delphi, there was once an oracle, meaning like a prophet. Many prophets down through the centuries, they say. They would sit on a tripod. These ladies, they were, sit on a tripod over a crack in the rock where gases were coming up, and they believe this is what made them sort of like hallucinate, I guess, and they'd make these predictions. And many famous people came here to Delphi down through the centuries. People like Croesus of Lydia there in Turkey itself. Alexander the Great consulted the Oracle of Delphi, wanting to know what the future holds and so on. The Emperor Nero, years later, he came to consult the the Oracle of Delphi. And then, of course, the Emperor Hadrian. Many famous people. Now, in ancient times, many people, which we can see, were interested in visiting the psychics to understand what was going to happen in their lives. But even in more recent times, men like Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, presidents of the United States of America, alongside those ancient people, have consulted the psychics to want to know what decisions they should make in their work as leading the nation. Do you know there are some very famous and controversial psychics today, of course, like Sylvia Brown? And many people go to visit the psychics to consult them as they look at their crystal balls or their tarot cards and so on. In fact, the psychics today are making big dollars. Very famous psychics like Edgar Casey, known as the sleeping prophet. Gene Dixon, a, a prophet or a psychic. Some years ago, predicted the assassination of John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, and the suicide of Marilyn Monroe. Very famous people, and some of them had a much higher batting average than people have today in trying to predict the future. But the prophets are and have been making big profits, from profits to profits, you know, by the ITS. There's a lot of money in this business today of trying to predict the future for people who come along for a visit to know what's going to happen in their life. A lot of money is being made today. But not just in among the psychics, there are many people even in the Christian church today, both Catholic and Protestant churches, who believe they're receiving prophecies from God. Many, thousands of people are claiming this today. What are we going to make of all this? Well, the Bible talks about this in a very serious way. Jesus made predictions. He warned regarding prophets and psychics in the end of time. Notice what Jesus said. False Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs, miracles and so on, great signs and wonders to deceive, 
if possible, even the elect, God's friends. Jesus warned, not only here, but elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, that there would be false prophets as we near the end of time. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15, let's take the text up. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, Jesus said, but inwardly, inside, they are ravenous wolves. Be careful, said Jesus the Christ. Not everyone who says, I know this and that, and I have a prophecy from God and so on, is actually of God. Some are inwardly like ravening wolves. But if you have false prophets, there's an indication in the very language, therefore, that we should expect true prophets in the end of time. In fact, the Bible says that the genuine gift of prophecy will be in the end times. Notice what the Bible says. Paul is writing to his friends in Ephesus. Wherefore, he said, when he, this is Jesus, when Jesus ascended up on high, when he went back to heaven, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, gifts to human beings. Then he gives us some of the gifts. He gave, he himself, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now you will notice one of those gifts that's mentioned among those gifts there in Ephesus is the gift of prophecy. And Paul said this gift with other gifts will go to the end of time, in fact. Notice what he says. So that you come short in no gift while you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said we should expect this gift even while we're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said. Now let's talk about the work of a prophet, a true prophet. You will notice the word prophet actually comes from two word Greek words joined together. These words are pro and fet. The word pro means for or on behalf of. The word fetis means to speak in Greek, meaning someone who speaks for someone else or on behalf of someone else. A prophet speaks for God. The word prophet doesn't mean, like it's often used, that someone predicts the future. No, he's a spokesman or a spokeswoman for God. Some things they did were predictive, but much of the work of a prophet had nothing to do with predictions. He was speaking to people for God to help them in their lives. This brings us to the purpose of prophecy in the Bible. What's its purpose? Notice what the Bible says as we go back to Ephesus, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He says, God gave gifts, and these are some of them, he said, prophets among them. What for? For the equipping of the saints, God's people, for the work of ministry. So he gave them to equip God's people so that they could serve or minister for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and knowledge, he says, of the Son of God. To a perfect, that means a mature person, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer, he says, be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine or teaching by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plottings, 
He could see that some people would be wanting to do this to deceive people, he says. So we don't want to be able to be deceived by these sorts of people. Now, you will notice the purpose of prophecy here. A number of reasons are given for it. We've just read for these gifts, among which is the gift of prophecy. But all of them are for this reason. These reasons, said Paul. Number one, to bring unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus. God wants us to believe the things that this book says about Jesus, unity of faith and knowledge of Jesus, to bring us to maturity. Is it very nice to see a 40-year-old in nappies? Hardly. God wants us as people who come to Jesus to grow up, to grow up in our lives, in our spiritual walk with God, so that we are mature people in our approach to God and to other people. Then he says, not only to bring us to maturity, he says, but God gives these gifts to bring stability to our lives so that when the latest idea comes along, we're not swayed this way and that way. We have stability in our life. We are focused. We we have a firm foundation is the idea. And notice the great goal of everything is to make us Christ-like. What a different world it would be if Christians who profess to be Christians were truly Christ-like. Truly Christ-like. That's what the word Christian means, one who follows Christ. But sadly, so many in the Christian church don't follow Christ. And that's why Muslims, for example, have want nothing to do with Christianity because what they see is not the real thing. Sometimes people in Hindu faith, I've lived in, in Fiji, They want nothing to do with Christianity when the very Christians who go to church one day, they steal stuff from them the next day. Who would want that sort of thing? So God wants and uses the gift of prophecy among the other gifts to help us to be Christ-like, to help us to be people like Jesus. What a different world it would be. And the last one is this, to prepare us to serve others, he said, to equip us to serve. That's what we said in our last session. The happiest people in this world are those who are out there to help other people. God wants us to serve, not just to sit. We are to serve like Jesus himself. He came down to help other people. Now, why would God send his prophets? What would be his reason for sending prophets? Those are some of the reasons we notice there. The whole reason, however, can be summed up in one word. That's the purpose of the prophecy. But why does God do it? Because of his love for his people. A prophet's work is to help people. There was a king in Israel. You may recall his name, King David. He was pretty prosperous at this point in his life's journey. One day he was standing there in his palace and he happened to look down on the rooftop of some of the houses below him and there was a woman taking a bath and he thought now she's nice so he made inquiry who this woman was found out that she was the wife of one of his soldiers who actually at this time was fighting in Amman in Jordan at the city of Amman fighting the Ammonites So David thought this is a good time to sleep with this lady so he asked her and she came and he committed adultery Now, how's he going to cover this thing up, he thought. Well, fortunately, guess who turns up not long after this? Uriah comes from some for some uh, some recreational leave. He comes home from Amman across the valley of Jordan, and he comes and he sees David. 
visits David, and David says, man, he says, how's the battle going over there? Oh, it's pretty, pretty, you know, pretty tough and so on, I guess uh, Uriah said to him. And David said, well, now, man, now that you're home, why don't you go have some special time with your wife? You know, you deserve it, man. You've been fighting out there. And he says, man, I can't do that, says Uriah. My fellow soldiers are out there fighting. I can't have the privileges of marital life while my fellow soldiers are fighting. I'm not going to do that, he says. I'll just go home and sleep in my own bed. Well, so he does. And David's got a problem. How am I going to get this guy to sleep with his wife so he can cover this thing up? So he calls the man in the next day and says, listen, come to a party of mine. And David gets him drunk, gives him alcoholic drink, and the guy gets drunk. And David hopes now he'll go home and spend some time with his wife. But he won't. He sleeps in the king's palace outside the door. David thinks, what am I going to do with this guy? He is so honorable. So David writes a little letter. He writes a letter and he says, now, dear General Joab, his general, I want you to put uh, Uriah the Hittite right up at the front where the arrows fall the thickest, right near the wall, he says, put him up there. And then he signs it, King David, wrap, folds it over and gives it to Uriah to take to the general over there in Amman. He's holding his own death warrant. What a miserable guy David is. So the guy goes over there and, of course, General Joab reads the letter and he says, ah, David wants this guy done away with, obviously. Okay, you're up the front, Uriah, and Uriah was killed. And David thought everything was sweet now. Nobody will know what he did and what she did. But God did. And God loved David, even though he was pretty miserable. And God sent a prophet to him. His name was Nathan. And one day, Nathan, not long after this, Nathan turns up and he says, David, we have a very serious problem here in your kingdom. He says, listen, there's a very wealthy guy up the road there who owns scores of sheep. And he's got a very poor neighbor or he had a poor, very poor neighbor who owned one little sheep. And the rich man had some, some friends coming one day. And he's so miserly, he said, look, what am I going to do? I've got to kill a sheep for my friends. So he looked over the fence, saw the poor man's sheep, stole the thing, killed it, and fed his friends on the other neighbor's sheep. David got off his seat and he says, where is that man? He deserves to die. And the prophet looked at David in the eye and he said, David, you are the man. Wow. And David suddenly realized that, yes, he's right. I'm a wealthy man and I've stole the one wife of this man and I've killed him. Now, David repented. The Bible says in Psalm 51, you can read it sometime. Have mercy on me, O God. And did he need mercy? Have mercy on me, O God, for what I've done. Killed a man and stolen his wife, committed adultery. And God forgave him. Oh, there were some consequences. There's some scars with some of the things we do, but God forgives us. And David will have eternity, of course. But that's the work of a prophet, you see. Not just to predict the future or something, but God shows him things that nobody else knows in the life of his people so that that person can make a course correction. This is the work of a prophet. 
Thank God. Now, how did God communicate his messages to the prophets? Well, there were a couple of ways. Number one, God did this through dreams and visions in the Bible times. Notice what the Bible says. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, like we saw happen to Daniel. God spoke to Daniel in a dream, gave the same dream that the king, he gave the king the night before. God speaks through dreams and visions. Number two way, God impresses the minds of the prophets. He impresses them with a thought or some, some, some ideas. Notice what the Bible says. For prophecy never came by the will of man. The prophets never cooked this up themselves, the true prophets. But holy men, mean men given to God, men who said, God, I'm going to follow you. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit impressed their minds with something that they needed to say or to do for his cause. So these were the two key ways. Now, not all prophets wrote in the Bible. Have you heard of the book of Nathan in the Bible? But we just read of a prophet. Did you know that Abraham is called a prophet in the Bible? But there's no book of Abraham in the Bible. Have you read the book of John the Baptist lately? No, but Jesus said this is the greatest of all the prophets, John the Baptist. So you don't have to write a book in the Bible to be a prophet, according to the Bible. And by the way, you don't have to be a man to be a prophet in the Bible. In the scriptures, we have a number of women who were prophets. One of the most famous one was Deborah in the book of Judges. She really told the men what to do in her day. A great leader in Israel was a woman, a prophetess called Deborah. Not only her, but there's another prophetess called Hulda in the Bible. In fact, you can visit Jerusalem today and you can see the Hulda Gates, three of them called the Hulda Gates there in the city of Jerusalem. Philip, one of the church uh, preachers, evangelists, and a deacon in the church in the book of Acts, he had four daughters who were prophetesses. Man, that would be pretty hard, wouldn't it? Dad couldn't do anything without the girl. So, Dad, you better make a course correction there. You know what I mean. No, the, these daughters, four of them were prophetesses in the house of, uh, of Philip. So women also had the gift. Now, how can we know the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? Because that's very important, especially in light of what is happening today, especially in light of Jesus' warning. There will be false prophets. They come like Sheep in wolves, sorry, wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus said. So here, now if you want to know whether a counterfeit note is genuine or not, what's the best way to know if you've got a fake $10 bill in your hand or something, $10 note? Well, the best way is to know the real one so well that you'll be able to pick up the phony, right? If you know what the genuine is like, you don't have to study all the the thousands of different counterfeits, just study the genuine so well that you'll be able to pick out the phony one because you know the genuine, you see. And that's a great principle for knowing the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet. Find out what a true prophet is really like in the Bible, and you'll be able to spot them as time goes on, the ones who are phonies. So a test of a true prophet. Here we go. Number one test is this. The first test of know what is a true prophet is this. A true prophet will have prophetic accuracy. He'll have a batting average of 100%. 
This is what the Bible says. Now, Jeremiah is talking here. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, when it happens, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, this is one test. He will make predictions and those predictions will come true or he's not a true prophet, God says. Now, I mentioned Gene Dixon, who predicted the assassination of Marilyn Monroe and of John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy. She had a batting average of somewhere between 30 to 60 percent, which is probably about twice the average batting average of the best psychics today. But Gene Dixon predicted that China would plunge world, the, the world into World War III in 1953. Well, that's come, gone. It's not happened. She's a false prophet. That's how you know that. That's the test number one. She made a prediction and it didn't happen. As God said, then you'll know whether they're true or not. The average leading psychic I mentioned the other day, 16%. The batting average of a true prophet is 100%. When God gives them a message, that message comes to pass. Number two, biblical faithfulness. In other words, what the prophet says will agree with this book, the Bible. Notice the way God puts it here. Now, this is Moses writing now. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, he makes a prediction even. He does say something's going to happen and it happens or whatever. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, you see. Got it, got it right. Of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the, for, sorry, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. In other words, if the prophet even does something supernatural, but he speaks against this book, you know he's not a God. If he says, let's follow a different God or let's do something contrary to this book, you know this is not a true prophet. Number three test of a true prophet is he will exalt Jesus Christ. He will seek to lift up Jesus the Christ. Notice the way it's put here by John. Of this salvation, the prophets, Peter, sorry, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched, meaning the Old Testament prophets. They inquired and they searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, Peter says, searching for what and what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, who impressed them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Do you see what Peter is saying here? He was saying those Old Testament prophets, they all were pointing forward to Christ and his sufferings. They were indicating something was going to happen. This is the work of a prophet. Number four, a prophet will keep the commandments of God. What he understands is the will of God, he'll follow the will of God. He'll be obedient to God. Isaiah put it this way, and Isaiah was talking about psychics and people who do amazing things, he says, to the law, meaning to the scriptures and the testimony, God's word. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. You see, the devil likes to mix truth with error, and that makes it harder. 
But if they don't speak anything, things according to this book, you know that no matter what amazing things they say or do, it is because there's no light in them from God. In other words, God is not directing these people. And the last test of a true prophet is this spiritual fruitage, the life of the person behind the life lived by the prophet. Notice what it says. Jesus said, beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by the way they speak, the way they act, the way they live. You'll know them by their life. This is another great test of a prophet, whether he's from God or not. So here are the tests in the Bible of a true prophet. Is he prophetically accurate? Is he biblically faithful? Do they lift up Christ and him crucified? Is that their work? Do they keep the commandments of God or do they trample on God's commandments and tell people they're done away with, no longer need to worry about them anymore? Do they have good spiritual fruitage in their life or are they hypocrites? They say one thing, but behind everybody's back, they do another thing. These are the tests. Now, God's end time faithful people, John says in the book of Revelation, will have the gift of prophecy in the end of time. The Bible makes that very plain. Come with me to the book of Revelation. Christ, you see, promised the prophetic gift in the end of time. Let's go to the book of Revelation now. The dragon was enraged or angry with the woman. This represents God's people. We'll see that in more detail. And he went to make war. He persecuted, in other words. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And notice how he defines these people. Who keep the commandments of God and they have what? They have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, Satan now goes to go to war with God's people in the end of time, his children, who keep his commandments and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They're faithful to God. But what's this testimony of Jesus Christ? How do we understand this from the Bible? Let's keep reading in Revelation. We go to the 19th chapter. And amazingly, John comes and sees an angel. He sees a lot of angels in Revelation, but this one in front of him, and he bows down to this angel, and the angel says, don't do that, John. I'm just an angel. I'm a created being. I'm not God. Notice what he says. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice what he says. Your brothers have the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, says God here through the angel. Now, the question, of course, is who were John's brothers then? Who were these brothers of John that had the testimony of Jesus or the spirit of prophecy? Well, John tells us. He bows at the feet of the angel a second time in the second, 22nd chapter. And the angel says, don't do it, John. I am your fellow servant and of your brothers or brethren who? The prophets. You see, it's the prophets who are given the Spirit's gift of prophecy. That's what it is. It's the gift of prophecy. And John says, in the end of time, in other words, God, the dragon makes war with God's people who keep his commandments, meaning they're faithful and they have the testimony of Jesus or the Spirit's gift of prophecy. You see, prophets testified of Jesus. That's why it's called the testimony of Jesus, because the prophets in the Old Testament, those in the New Testament, they all pointed to Jesus. They had a one-track mind, Christ and him crucified. Those before pointed to Jesus to come. Those after pointed Jesus who had come and who had ascended and was about to come, is coming again. 
prophets testified of Jesus. That's why it's called the testimony of Jesus Christ, the dragon. So let's put it here. The dragon was enraged in the end of time with the woman, went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God. In other words, and they have the testimony of Jesus or the Spirit's gift of prophecy because that's who gives the gift, the Holy Spirit, as we read earlier this afternoon. Now, we should expect this in the end of time. We should expect God to give the prophetic gift in the end of time because in the great period of history down from right at the beginning of the world to the end, whenever there's been a major crisis or a major event about to happen or something's taking place, God has always sent prophets. That's what the teaching of this Bible is. You think about it. When God was about to destroy the world, he sent a prophet called Noah. He sent a prophet just before Noah called Enoch. When God was about to raise up a a nation to take the gospel to the world called Israel, he raised up a prophet called Abraham. When God was about to send his son the the first time as a baby, he called a prophet called John the Baptist. We we not think God would arouse, would bring the gift of prophecy before the greatest event of all the time, the return of Jesus the Christ the second time, of course. And so this is what Jesus is predicting. In fact, the Bible says God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And God says, listen, through Amos, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servant, the prophets. So you see, we should expect this to take place in the end of time. And you see, in the end time, the gift of prophecy is for God's remnant, which we saw means yesterday, his people who are faithful to him. When the whole world we're going to see, and John Jesus himself said, the road to the kingdom is narrow, and few go there. The road to destruction is broad, and sadly most go that way. In the end of time, Jesus said, will the Son of Man find faith on the world? Doesn't mean there's not going to be faithful people. We talked about that yesterday. But God has a gift for his people so that it is to help them as they face earth's greatest final crisis. God will send the gift of prophecy again. In fact, the Bible itself is the testimony of Jesus, right? Because the Old Testament, those prophets wrote of Jesus to come. The New Testament as prophets like Paul and Peter. They were prophets and they spoke of Jesus who had come. The Bible itself is called the testimony of Jesus, but not just the Bible. The book of Revelation is called the testimony of Jesus. John says that this book especially is called the testimony of Jesus. He said, John, I, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of This prophecy, he calls it the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And they keep those things written in it. The testimony of Jesus is the Bible, but it's especially mentioned as the book of Revelation. But it also means that the gift of prophecy, the gift itself, will be among God's end time remnant, meaning his faithful people who love God with all their heart and they follow God. This gift will be seen. In fact, that's what the prophet Joel said. It shall come to pass, said Joel afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. He said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men, he said, shall 
shall see visions before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Notice it. Young men, old men will see visions. Now, God promised the gift of prophecy to his end time church, his end time people, as we near the end of time. And I want to share with you the life of a person who I believe had this gift. You'll have to make this decision for yourself. God said this is going to happen. God said your sons and your daughters. So we should understand this. Paul said, despise not prophesying, but test them and hold that which is true. So we're counseled by the Bible to not just spurn it, but to examine it, test it, and see if it is the real deal. But let me share with you one lady who I believe had this gift. Now, this woman here was a Methodist, young girl, about 17 years of age when she received her first vision, and she received some 2,000 visions through the rest of her life. It's quite amazing to read about it. When she was about nine years of age, she had a serious accident, and a young girl, a friend of hers, kids playing and you know how kids go and threw a rock at her and it hit her in the nose and she she really was not able to go to school pretty much after that. It, it really did a lot of damage to her and she had to quit school. She tried to come back, but she just couldn't. Uh, the, the, the injury was just affecting her health. So pretty much after the age of about nine, she had no more formal education. Whatever she got was at home from her mum giving her books to read and so on. So no formal education after the, about the ninth year of her life. But she had these 2,000 different visions. Now, when this lady had visions, many supernatural things happened, especially in the first visions that she was given. For example, she would hold up a large Bible in one hand while she was in a vision, and she would turn the pages, not looking at the Bible, but she seemed to be looking somewhere else, but turn the pages, and she'd be quoting things on the page of the Bible where she was talking about. And people thought, what's going on? She's not even looking, but she's right on the spot. Not only that, she held the Bible up for an extended period of time. I would challenge any man in here to hold one of those large Bibles in their hand for more than 20 minutes. Sometimes she, she, she was not breathing when she had visions. In fact, a doctor heard about this. He thought it was a lot of nonsense. Mesmerism, he called it. And so he, when he heard she was in vision on one occasion and had been in vision for a couple of hours and sometimes, he, he, he gave her some tests. He put a mirror up before her face and a candle and so on. And, and he said, she's not breathing. What's going on here? Here she is having this vision, but nothing, she's not even breathing. And so he was just mind boggled. Now, this doesn't mean it's of God, of course, because the devil can do this sort of stuff. It doesn't mean it's of God. It simply means it's supernatural. It's beyond the human understanding how this person can be in a vision and not breathe. This happened to the prophet Daniel, you'll read as well when you read some of his, his, his book, the book of Daniel, when he was in vision. So it doesn't mean it's of God. It simply means something supernatural is taking place. So what we would need to do is do the test. But let me show you what people have said about this woman. This remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated because of the accident, has written and published more books in more languages which circulate, he said, to the greater extent than any other woman in history. This is the most prolific woman writer in history of planet Earth, says this gentleman here, James, George Wharton James. In other words, a prolific writer. Now, let's do the biblical test because that's what we should do. And I've done these myself, but you'll have to do it yourself. But let me share with you where you'd need to start. Number one is this. What about her prophetic accuracy? Did she make some predictions? Did she make some amazing statements which nobody knew about at the time, that sort of thing? Did she make some signs and wonders? Yes, she certainly did. 
Most of her writings was like the, the sort of the writings of the Bible prophets. It wasn't mainly prediction. It was about instruction and helping people in their regular life. But she did make predictions in the course of her work. Notice this one here that she predicted uh, back in, uh, in about before 1900 thereabouts. Not long hence, she said, these cities, she's talking about the two twin cities in America on the West Coast, San Francisco and Oakland. She said, not long hence, these cities will suffer under the judgment of God. San Francisco and Oakland, she said, are becoming as Sodom and Gomorrah and the Lord will visit them in wrath. Something's going to happen to these cities. Now, you'll notice this statement's made in 1902. Shortly thereafter... San Francisco and Oakland had a tremendous catastrophe when fire ripped out the heart of these great cities in an earthquake that took place and so on, just as she had predicted. Now, there's another thing she said. She's writing this in the early 1900s, late 1800s. She says, the tempest is coming. We shall see trouble on all sides. Thousands of ships will be hurled into the depths of the sea. Navies will go down and human lives will be sacrificed by the millions. Notice she wrote that in 1890. Shortly after, what did we have? We had tremendous world wars. Soon great trouble will arise among nations, trouble that will not cease until Jesus comes. She wrote that in 1906. Now, I would remind you of something here at this time. People in those days, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, says, we are entering into a new age of peace, they said. The world has grown up. We have the industrial age and the world is becoming to peace. That was the worst century we've had for war, as you will recall from a previous program. 180 million people died from war alone in that century that she was, she said, it's about to happen. Navies went down to the bottom of the ocean in those wars. You know that. Whole navies and so on. Millions of lives sacrificed. Yes, she made some predictions and she certainly got them right. She also said some things that were not known in her day regarding some health principles. At a time when doctors actually prescribed tobacco for their patients to calm their nerves, she said these words. Tobacco, she said, is a slow and an insidious but most malignant poison in whatever form it is used. It tells upon the constitution. It is all the more dangerous, she said, because its effects are slow and at first wholly imperceptible, uh, wholly hardly perceptible, I should say. Now, we know today that tobacco is extremely dangerous, but in her time when she wrote this, tobacco, as I said, was being prescribed. It's not until we get to the 1950s that the United States Surgeon General said that smoking is the cause of cancer, lung cancer. And now, of course, there's many other health issues that we now know of medically and scientifically that come from this thing, tobacco. She certainly got that right as she spoke about those things. Well, what about biblical faithfulness? What did she think about the Bible? Uh, What was her reaction to the scriptures and so on? She said these words, in our time, talking of the Bible, she says, in our time, there is a wide departure from their doctrines, the Bible's doctrines and precepts. And there is a need, she said, for a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only. She said, as the rule of faith and duty. In other words, this is the book that we all need to go back to like those great priests and bishops in the 
dark age period who pointed the church back to this and the reformation began solda scriptura it's called the bible and the bible only she said these words talking of her own writings she said my writings are like a lesser light compared to the bible she said little heed is given to the bible many people don't even read it don't even study the bible And the Lord has given a lesser light, meaning some of her writings, to lead men and women to the greater light. In other words, her work was to take people from where they were and get them to go back and read the Bible because that's the book for God's people, not her writings. They are just a lesser light to get people to go back to the greater light. Now, I like this statement she made here, and let me explain it. Back in the 1800s, Terrible things were coming into the Christian church. You see, Christians began to think, well, listen, we can't really trust the Bible. See, the scientists tell us that the first three chapters, that's not according to what some evolutionary, what evolutionary scientists say. So we tear that as it were out. And this idea about miracles, come on, give me a break. How can you have someone feeding 5,000 from a few loaves and fishes? Pull that bit out. Anything to do with miracle. And prophecy, how can you have prophecy? That's supernatural. Pull that out as well. And in a sense, Christians were tearing up the Bible. And soon you're left with just two covers, the front and the back, and nothing in between. Because nothing of it is is really of any value because we don't believe it could ever happen. So this is what was happening. We call it higher criticism. And this is why she wrote what she wrote. She said these words, cling to your Bible as it reads and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity and obey the word and not one of you will be lost, she said. And that's good counsel. She certainly pointed people back to the Bible. In fact, her last words, when she spoke publicly on one occasion, she went to sit down and she returned back to where she was speaking from, the podium, and she picked up the Bible and she said, I commend you to this book. Go back to the Bible. And those are pretty much her last words before she died. She exalted Jesus, did she? Well, yes, she certainly did. You read statements like this one here. Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon. Lift him up in song, in prayer. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls who are confused and bewildered and lost to the Lamb of God. Lift him up, she said, the risen Savior, and say to all who hear, come to him who has loved us and has given himself for us. She certainly loved Jesus Christ, and she pointed people to it. In fact, she wrote a number of books on Jesus. One here that we have for sale today as well, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. This is from the the Sermon on the Mount. She wrote a book called Christ's Object Lessons on the Parables of Christ, a lovely little book. And then, of course, she wrote this famous book that's called The Desire of Ages, a book on the life of Jesus, which many Christians have found so very, very helpful. But she was pointing them in all this work, go back to the Bible and read it for yourself. Was she commandment keeping? Yes, she believed in the commandments of God. At first of all, when someone showed her the Sabbath, because she was a Sunday keeper too, even when she was having this gift because she didn't know about the Sabbath, At first, she couldn't see the sense in the Sabbath. She thought, what's the big deal? I don't get it. And that's the truth for many people. Many people don't keep the Sabbath because either they've never heard it or they just don't get it. But God, if they love him, God will soon show them. And after about two years, 
she began to realize as she thought about this more and heard more about it, she said, this is the Sabbath of the Bible. I'm going to keep the Sabbath. So she herself followed God's commandment in this area of her life. And when God revealed other things, she followed him in keeping the commandments of God. What about the last one? What about her spiritual fruitage? What was the life like of the person behind this gift? Well, you have the Sydney Adventist Hospital right here on your doorstep. This is because, primarily because of the influence of Ellen White. She encouraged the church everywhere around the world. You must have hospitals and clinics all around the world because when Jesus was here, he not only preached, but he healed broken bodies. He helped people in practical ways. And so the, she encouraged the church to set up all these hospitals. Not only that, in 209 countries, she said the gospel is for the world. The angel says go into every nation, every kindred, tongue and people. What are you sitting on your bottoms for? <laughs> so she encouraged the church, you must take this gospel to the world. It's a message for every person on planet Earth. And that's one of the reasons why this message of the three angels is going because she encouraged you, go to the Bible and see what the Bible says about this. She was a great, uh, great uh, supporter for Christian education. And so she encouraged the church to set up schools everywhere because young people needed to be educated to help their, their communities wherever they are in around the world. And so she's helped to establish 7,800 and so schools around the world and universities and so on. In fact, New Zealand's first Maori politician was supported or put through medical school by Ellen White. She saw this young man and believed in him, and so she funded him to go to North America, to the United States to study. When he came back, he was a doctor in, North, in, in New Zealand, and then he became New Zealand's first Maori politician. She believed in young people and educating them for service in this world and to help people to have eternity. New York Times, New York Independent newspaper wrote of this woman when she died. They said she showed no spiritual pride. She sought no filthy lucre. In fact, she didn't. She printed her books at her own expense and borrowed money to do it. She didn't make anything out of those books for herself. She lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess, even though she didn't call herself that. The most admirable of the American succession, says this writer here, in the New York Independent. Yes, she certainly did help people in many different ways. Now, you know, this woman has helped many people to go back to the Bible and to improve their walk with Jesus Christ. In fact, you know, she has helped in many areas of life. I know my own. It's helped my work as a, as a preacher it's helped our marriage it's helped our healthful living because she wrote in all these areas that affect our lives and it's been a tremendous blessing to know some of these things and to put them into practice but one that interests me most is this one the largest single church in the world is in korea and it's, it's an assemblies of god church a pentecostal church in korea by uh, david yongi cho and one day, some Seventh-day Adventist preachers went to visit this man to find out, why are you so successful? There's over 500,000 members in one church with 50,000 small groups at that time. So they went to this man and they said, how come you're so successful in spreading the gospel in Korea? He said, listen. And he went over to his library and he pulled down two books. One was called The Book Evangelism by Ellen White and the other was called Gospel Workers by Ellen White. And he said to these Seventh-day Adventist preachers, he said, well, you read your own books, you'll have the sort of success that I'm having. Good medicine for these people, you see. Good medicine indeed and tremendous help. But you know, not every person 
who has access to these books, who can get them, I'm talking about those in her faith, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, read her books. They don't take the time to even read them. And surveys have been done between those people in that church, those who read them and those who don't bother to read them. They could read them, but they just don't bother. And this, I want you to share with you as we close the interesting results of a survey that was done. I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. In other words, Jesus is my saviour and I love Christ and I want to follow Christ. Notice the difference. For those people who read her writings, 82% said, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. But it was only 56% for the non-readers. Here's another question. Question number two. That's a massive difference, by the way, a 24% difference between those. The assurance of being right with God. In other words, if I die today or Jesus should come today, I know I will have eternal life. Notice the difference here. 82% again for the regular readers, but only 59% for the non-readers. Quite a difference again, 23%. Here's another one. Involvement in Christian outreach. In other words, serving the community and helping people to come to know Jesus as their friend and saviour. The difference was massive. Readers were 24% more involved than the non-readers because she says, hey, this is what we're here for. We must be like Christ. We must reach out to other people. The last one is this one, daily personal Bible study. Now, maybe we would think, well, people wouldn't have time to read the Bible because they're reading her writings. The answer is wrong. Notice what? 82% for the reg, for the regular readers. Why did they tend to read more of the Bible? Because she said, go read the Bible. Hey, that's the main book. Go there. This is, I'm just a lesser light. That's the thing. The Bible. 47% for the non-readers. Massive difference, you can see. 35% more involved in Bible reading. In closing, I want to share with you a fascinating story. That helps us understand. And I want to encourage you today, not just about Alan White. The main gift of prophecy is this book. You and I would do well. We would do the best thing if this is the book that we read. Forget about her writings. I mean, I read them, but I spend three times more in this book, the Bible, because it's the light. That's a lesser light, but an important one to help us. Notice what the Bible says. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall prosper. Whether they're prophets in the past or prophets in the present, if they are a true prophet, then we should believe them and we will prosper and be established. In fact, you will notice this statement from Paul that we began with, despise not prophesying. Don't say this is nonsense, but Paul does not say swallow it like a hook, line and sinker either. He says test it, test all things and hold fast that which is good. That's good counsel from the Apostle Paul. Don't poo-hoo the idea. Test it, and it's easy to test. You just need to read a bit and compare it with the Bible. And if it's not true, then discard it. Simple. Paul gives us that principle. But I want to share with you in closing an amazing story. There was a guy by the name of Stephen Smith living back in the 1800s. Stephen Smith was a very bitter man. You know, you meet some people like that, very bitter. They haven't got a good word to say about anybody, period. Grumpy old man. Well, he was a young man. And one day he received a letter from Ellen White, and it was signed by her and sealed. And on the back, of course, she had the sender's name, her name. And when Stephen Smith got this letter, he was really angry. He said, I don't need any letter from a blankety-blank prophet. And he folded the thing up and he took it up to the attic and he stuffed it in a big chest that he had at the bottom. And there it lay for years. Well, Stephen Smith, 
gets older and older, but the older he gets, the more bitter he gets. And he's an old man now, and he's going on 70s, 80s, and Stephen Smith, something started to speak to him in his head. God started to speak to him, Stephen, I love you, and you need to turn around your ways. You need to come back to me. Stephen Smith decided he would turn back to God, and so one day he went to the church down the road from where he was, and he happened to read something in one of the papers there in the church, and it was written by Alan White, and he thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. That's quite good. I like that. And then he remembered that old letter. So Stephen Smith, as soon as church was over, he went back to his home, went upstairs to the attic, got hold of that letter stuffed in the bottom of that trunk, sat down on it and began to read it. And as he read it, he began to cry because there in that letter, it indicated what exactly he would become if he did not go turn back to God. And everything in that letter was exactly what had happened to his life. And he said, if only I had read that letter when I got it 30 years ago. But what a great God to speak to an old man who doesn't have much now to offer God, but God still loved him. That's the work of a prophet. That was the work of Alan White. But more importantly, that's the work of these prophets. Now, you will notice I have not mentioned things by Alan White before, and I'm not about to do it anymore either. I just simply needed to raise this issue because John raises it in Revelation that in the end of time, to help God's people, God will send prophets. Joel said the same thing. So that's why I've raised it, but I won't be talking about it anymore. But if you want to get some of this material, which is so helpful, I would suggest that you go to the the book uh, place this afternoon at the Function Center, and these five books that I've mentioned, they take us right through the story of the Bible and to the end of time and you will find them helpful especially if you read the biblical part and then read the chapter okay so I would encourage that it's been a great blessing to me and a great help and to many other people let's bow together in prayer shall we loving father in heaven thank you for the words of Paul despise not prophesying but thank you that he added don't swallow it hook line and sinker as well he said test it have a read of it. Check it. Father, we pray that you will help us to do that, to hold that which is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my friends, where would, how would you test this? You would test these things by reading a bit. Would you go to the internet to check on whether the Bible is a good book or not? Not a smart place, because if you go to the internet, there's a lot of people that tear down the Bible, right? So that wouldn't be a smart place to start. Where would you want to start if you want to check whether this book was the truth or not? You just read the book. Just read it. Start reading and you'll soon see, you see. Same with this. Go to the internet. Not smart. Read a bit. Check it with the Bible. That's the smartest way to know what is truth. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.